appreciate that. Thank you all. Um, I told first service, as Andrew was walking off the stage, just wanted to grab him and tell him to go back up there with the team and just keep singing. And I almost did it again. We're just going to sing for another half hour to 40 minutes. But uh, the Lord does have a word. But I don't know if y'all noticed this. And I noticed it in first service, but maybe even more in this one. I don't know if that means y'all are holier or, or just better singers. But I don't know if y'all been in a room where there's this many people, but it feels like 10 times this many people. Um, that's the presence of the Lord. And I can't see angels. I know a person or two that allegedly can at least, but I think that we have the spirit of God in this room. Maybe there's some angels in here and maybe you're new to church. You're wondering like, what's going on? What am I feeling? Look, we're just glad you're here. Uh, The presence of God is here and he was ministering in first service. And I pray that he does the same here. I love my brother. Um, Like he said, I'm the better looking, more intelligent. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, But I, I love him and his wife and the staff here and the teams here. I love being up here once or twice a year just to encourage you guys. Um, I love this campus. The Lord is doing something here. And if you've been here for a few weeks or a few months or a few years, maybe you can get used to it. I would just encourage you, don't. This is not normal. How the Lord's moving. Like this room is packed for two services in the summer in a college town. That doesn't happen. The spirit of the Lord is here. He is moving in lives And so can we honor Pastor Seth and Pastor Kendra and the staff here? I have two brothers. He's my least favorite. Um, (laughs) He's way stronger than me, so I'm going to regret saying that. Uh, We've been in the life of David at most of our campuses all summer long, and um, there are a few campuses doing it a little bit differently, but y'all have been going in chronological order. And so last week, um, Pastor Aaron talked about uh, with David and Bathsheba, probably the second most popular chapter in David's life behind the chapter of David and David and who? Goliath. And so in the chapter of David and Goliath, Goliath fell, but in the chapter last week, David fell. And y'all kind of left right there after he slept with Bathsheba. They had a baby. He killed Uriah, which was her husband. And then he, he basically hid all of this, and he was being deceitful. We're picking up in the next chapter today. But what I love about the life of David, what I love about Scripture, is that in almost every chapter of the Bible, you can see the gospel message, whether the name of Jesus is mentioned or not. And today is no different. We're going to see the gospel message in this story. We're going to try to learn not just from David's sin, but his response to his sin. So let's pick up where we ended last week with the last verse in chapter 11. It says that she became his wife, is referring to Bathsheba, and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Raise your hand if you think you've ever displeased the Lord in your life. Raise two hands if you're like me, and it's been quite a few. So what happened to make David change his heart from chapter 11 to where he's at, what we're going to study today in his conviction, in his confession, in his repentance. Today, that's what we're going to be talking about. I do want to pray before we go any further. God, have your way. Any word that I have that's not yours, I pray you would take it away. But if it's from you, I pray that it sinks in, that there would be good soil here today, Lord, that we would lower our defense systems, that we would receive your word from your spirit and from the Bible, and that you would speak to us individually and as the church on this topic. We say, Holy Spirit, you're the only spirit that's welcome here. We pray that you would move in a powerful way. In Jesus' name I pray, and the church said amen. Amen. The second Samuel chapter 12 is our text today, and I'm going to read a few verses 
And so if you have your Bible app or your Bible, uh, go ahead and flip there. If you don't, we'll pray for you afterwards. <laughs> Just kidding. We'll still pray for you, but not about Anyway, the Lord sent Nathan to David. It's in verse 1. When he came to him, he said, so Nathan's this prophet. The Lord sends him. He tells him this story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. He grew it up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Everyone say weird. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. It says that David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this, he must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing, and he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. If you're taking notes, I've titled today's message, The Man and the Lamb. There's a few things I want to break down today. I do want to note that this is not like a three-point sermon and then a cute altar response moment. There's like 12 or 13 points today, and I'm going to hit them as quick as I can. Seth did say at second service I can go an hour, and so I'm going to, I'm just kidding. Um, But there are several points today as we go through this, because as I was studying this week, man, the Holy Spirit was just unpacking so much in this text. And the first thing that we need to know is in Proverbs chapter 27, that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So David, he was confronted by someone that he trusted. This wasn't a random person. This wasn't a keyboard warrior on social media. This was someone that was dear to him. It was a prophet. He was a friend. I'm sure for all of us, if we were to raise our hands and say, hey, have you been backstabbed by a friend in your life before? Most of us, probably all of us could say yes at one point or another. But we all need a Nathan in our life who can confront us and we not get offended. We need people in our circle who we trust with truth and with grace to come to us and say, hey, you're not getting this right. Micah, who's on staff here at this campus, he's one of those for me. My friend Rob, who's with me today, these two guys can ask me any question at any point, and y'all, I don't like that. I'm just being honest, but it keeps me accountable, and it keeps me hopefully on the right track, and hopefully it keeps me as holy as possible. But you need people in your life that can ask you, how are you doing your finances? What are you watching? How are you treating your spouse? How are you treating your kids? What's it like at work? What are your, your thoughts like? We need people that can confront us and we not get offended. So this leads me to the first thing that we need to learn from this text. Don't just quote this and put it on social media because it's going to look really weird. But stab people in the front and be able to receive the same. Stab people in the front. Have confrontation with people with truth and grace. Hey, this is where you need to improve. This is what needs to change. But be able to receive the same. For me in my life, and I've learned from other people, is that some people don't like the pain and the tension of confrontation because they don't know the premise of a real relationship. Iron sharpens iron, and that rarely feels good, just to be honest. Sometimes it can be fun, but confrontation is kind of like sun. It has a way of hardening some things and softening other things, like wax and clay. Confrontation can soften our heart at times, and at times it can harden our hearts. How is it in this text, in this story that Nathan tells to David that 
that David can see the other man's sin but not see his own. There's so many times in my life I'm very proficient at measuring other people's sin. And if you're like me at times, we have a soft heart. It's pretty easy to perceive other people's mess-ups and their flaws and their shortcomings, but at times our heart is hardened towards our own. Which is the next thing we get from this text is that we need to consistently ask God for his heart towards sin. We need to consistently ask God for his heart towards our sin. And the more our heart is like the Lord's, the less we are going to tolerate sin in our lives. And I just want to say that today's text is almost, if not just as heavy as last week's text, because there are consequences to our sin. And I wrestle sometimes because I know in the word it says that God is loving and that he's graceful and he's forgiving and his mercies are new every morning. But I also know scripture says that he's jealous. And I've read some of the stories where he's killed like 180,000 people in one night. And I know that he has all this power and he's a protective father and there's consequences to sin. So over times in my life, I'm wondering when I mess up, which part of God do I get? And the answer is both. His character does not change and it won't change. And so in our text today, we see the grace of God and we see the consequences of sin. Let's pick up in verse 10. So God says, he's talking through Nathan. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, David, because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your eyes, I will take your wives and I will give them to one who is close to you. That's messed up. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'm going to do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. So Pastor Aaron, he said this last week, and I've seen this in my life. Maybe you've seen it in yours, that when you and I walk in sin, there's not only consequences for me, but there's consequences for the people that I love and people that are close to me. So David committed murder, adultery, tried to hide it. He was deceitful. And the Lord said, because of that, and we'll read this in a little bit, I'm going to strike that son that you and Bathsheba, Bathsheba had with an illness, and he's going to die. That's a severe consequence. So David's son died. He had a daughter who was raped by one of her brothers. He had a son who led a civil war. He also had a son that had the same sin that he had, a sexual sin, a lack of self-control. He was deceitful, and he led a lot of people away from the heart of God. And so a note to parents and grandparents from this text is that we can't raise up if we don't model ourselves. We can't raise up if we don't model. And so what we do in our life is what our children are going to replicate, whether we like it or not. And so we need to have a strong prayer game. This is convicting to me as a dad of two kids that what I do in my life can be easily replicated to my kids. Now, if we're doing holy things and good things, it's the same principle. This is a principle in the kingdom that what we do as leaders in our household, our kids have a tendency to do. But I will say this, is that in my life and in David's life, it's possible, and I've seen it, that it's possible to learn more obedience to the Lord through our suffering than it is in our success. Have you ever noticed that pain looks different in the rearview mirror? That when you're in the season, maybe you're going through something with your spouse or you go through something at work or health crisis, in that season, I don't know about you, I'm rarely thankful for that season. But when I get on the other side and I see God's hand working through it and I see the favor that comes through walking through it obediently, pain looks a lot different. You can actually learn a lot from it. 
And we see that in our text in chapter or in verse 13. It says, Then David said to Nathan, Everyone say, Then. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And as I was reading the text on Monday and Tuesday, that word then just jumped out to me. And I called Seth and I was like, Man, I've never seen this before. It was not until a friend or a prophet came to David, told him a story, called him out for his sin, and told him the consequences of his sin, and then David confessed. And still the Lord honored David's confession. I want you to notice that the Lord has a shocking, capac- a shocking capacity to forgive us. He's a shocking capacity to give us grace. Some say, some Bible scholars say it was nine months to a year before Nathan came and confronted David. And so it wasn't just a few days. It wasn't maybe just a few weeks or even a couple of months. But the baby was born. And then Nathan comes and David confesses. Can you imagine Hopefully, imagine killing someone, committing adultery, hiding this sin for that amount of time, the shame that probably most of us would feel in the weight that comes from that. There had to have been times that he ignored the Holy Spirit in those months and in that season. Like David, I've learned in my life, you do not want to ignore the Holy Spirit in your sin. So we need to confess our sin to God, and he offers forgiveness. We confess our sin in James chapter 5 to each other, and we are healed. But there are things as Christ followers that, that hold us back from confessing. One I don't mention here in the notes is that it can be just embarrassing to tell someone, hey, this is where I messed up. This is where I messed up again. But one of the main things that holds us back from confession is shame. He did all of those things. I'm sure that shame had a part to play. And I remember as a teenager with habitual sin, Habitual ways of not seeing God rightly and being just stuck in shame, even after I confessed and repented. And what I'm learning now in this season of life, I ask God this question, and I encourage you to ask the same. Is God, how do you see me right now? Even in my sin or if I'm doing well, how do you see me right now? And when I pray that, when I feel shame trying to hold me down, I'll pray that. God, how do you see me? Help me to see me the way you see me. And I got a picture of my little boy. He's five, he's Kai, he's handsome, but he's a handful. He actually has a shirt that says handsome, handful. And that's exactly who he is. But I think I get a picture of Kai because he gets way more in trouble than his older sister Ellie right now in this season of life. He, he has these big emotions and he likes to use his hands to show them. And so when I pray, Lord, can you show me a picture of how you see me? I get a picture of me and Kai. And usually it's one of the last times I confronted him with something that he's done that is not acceptable in our house. And at times I can see myself outside of this conversation, like looking down on he and I having this conversation. And I'm trying to convince this little guy to have a heart that is genuinely sorry. And as parents and as grandparents maybe, or as a friend of someone that has kids, when that kid, when my son comes and actually is sorry for what he has done, when he lays his head on my chest or when he holds my hand with his cute little sticky fingers or when he just looks me in my eyes like, Daddy, I'm sorry. There is nothing in the world I wouldn't heap on his head in that moment to bless him, whether it's candy or sugar or Coke. I would give anything in the world for him in those moments. If the door 
If someone's at the door knocking, I'm not answering it. If the oven timer's going off, it's just going to burn. I'll recook the pizza rolls. The Seth is calling me to brag about his garden. I'm just not going to answer the phone because in those moments, he's a gardener if you didn't know. In those moments, I am so in love with my son. And I'm an imperfect father. But when he is genuinely sorry, man, it just melts my heart. And I am convinced that God feels that way about you and I all the time that his love is unshakable, that he loves us tremendously. And when we remember that, it's really hard for shame to have a hold on us. In Romans chapter 8, it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Something from this text that we can learn in the next psalm we're about to read is that shame is a lie to keep you quiet. Shame is a lie to keep you quiet. In Psalm chapter 32, you have David who's writing this psalm, And he says, when I kept silent, when I didn't confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, Lord, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. We know what that's like. 110 degrees outside, or at least the heat index. You get in your car and you start melting and cook chicken on your hood. Like the heat of summer, no one likes that feeling. This that heavy weight of humidity. And we've had moments, if we're being honest today, Seasons like that in our life with our sin, where there's that weightiness, there's that humidity to it. And shame will hinder our confession. And secondly, everyone say pride. Some of y'all didn't say pride because, never mind. Um, Pride is another thing that hinders our confession. Proverbs chapter 16, it says this, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. There are many times in our life where we could be doing well, we could be successful, or at least trying to give off that impression that we're doing well, that we're strong, that we got it together. And in the church and in the culture that we live in, we have a tendency to think that confessing makes us look weak. It makes people think that we're vulnerable. It makes people think that we need some help, and that is the point, church, is that we are weak. We are vulnerable. We do need help from people and from God. That's why we do need to confess. But pride will try to either whisper or shout, you got this. Keep hiding it. It's going to be embarrassing. Don't do it. Work harder. Make more money. Wear more brands. Do certain things. As long as your family looks good, as long as you're moving forward in life, just strive. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And pride will harden our hearts. And just like King David, you can have the heart of a warrior, but not have a heart that responds to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and miss everything. So you could be successful. The Lord wants us to be. Your family can be doing well. Praise God. We could be strong in certain areas of our life, but if our heart's not soft enough to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we're missing the mark. Something else that we can learn is that you can't entertain pride and expect results that are reserved for humility. You can't entertain pride and expect results that are reserved for humility. There is a sense of some type of pride at the bottom of every willful sin that you and I commit. In church, if I'm just being all the way authentic, I know what it's like to confess sin to my friends, to my pastors, to people that I trust. It's not always easy. But I also know that it's a lot more difficult than like some times in my life where I've got caught in sin. It's way easier to confess sin 
than it is to get caught in it. And I've learned the hard way that when your sin no longer breaks your heart, but only breaks God's, you're living in a dangerous place. Or when your sin only breaks your heart, and it's not, or it only breaks the people's hearts out of people that are around you, and not breaking your heart, you're living in a dangerous place. And so David, he's in this spot, and he confesses. He says, Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. You're right, I did it. But I want you to notice that confession and repentance are not the same thing, church. Telling someone you've sinned and changing your mind about it is not the same thing. Because David could say, yeah, I did it, Nathan. You got me. I'm the man. But he also repents. He didn't say a word to excuse himself. He didn't make light of his sin. He didn't blame it on Bathsheba being attractive. He didn't blame it on anyone. He owned it. And the Lord honored David's confession because the Lord loves a repentant heart. The Lord loves a repentant heart. There is no way that David deserved grace after doing those things. There is no way that I could stand before you today and say, what I've done in my life, that I deserve grace. And if we're all being honest, there is no way any of us in this room that we deserve grace, but God honors repentance. In Acts chapter 3, it says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So Pastor Ramirez at our Conway campus about two weeks ago, he said that repentance should be a core discipline of Christ's followers. There's fruit that comes from repenting, but it also, Scripture says, it leads to refreshing. I don't know if you work construction or maybe you've been out in the heat this summer, but it feels really good to be refreshed to walk into that room that's full with AC and the ice cold lemonade, maybe an iced coffee if you're a real Christian, and it leads to refreshing. I mentioned in first service that I had someone very kindly correct me. And this is what I'm about to say is that repenting, I told first service is two things. He said, no, it's three. He knew, he said, I've 20 to 30 or 40 years of Hebrew language experience. And so he was just teaching me, which I love. When repent is used in the Bible, it's three things. The first one is turning away from whatever that thing is and turning back towards God. The second is changing your mind and changing your heart about it. So it's not only a turn, but it's okay. Now I'm changing my mind about that thing. And he said, but you missed number three. Number three is never doing it again. And that's the hard part, right? Turning, most of the times we could do that, changing our mind at least for a day or a week or a season. But man, never going back to that thing that we like in our flesh, that's difficult. The reason that you have to turn and change your mind Let's say that my son, which he's done this before, he, he hits his sister because he has these big feelings. And so I go into the room and I have a conversation with my son and he turns and he leaves the room. He could be sorry. He might not be. For me as a dad, that's not enough for him just to turn and leave the situation. I want my son to genuinely change his mind. I want him to change his heart about wanting to hit his sister, not just leaving the situation. And God wants us to turn. He wants us to change our mind and change our heart. And we see that David does this. In Psalm chapter 51, Bible scholars say that he wrote this in this season of life. And he says, God, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. 
It's like, look, I messed up and I need your help. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And skipping down to verse 10. This is David's heart cry. He says, create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What I love here is that David appealed to the character of the Lord. I don't know if sometimes when you pray that you remind God of who he is. It's not that God forgets, but it does do us good to remember who God is. And David is saying, it's according to your unfailing love. It's according to your great compassion, Lord, that you will wipe away my sin. He said, create in me a clean heart. And in the Hebrew, this means a pure will, a pure decision maker, a a clean center of our being. Well, how do we do this as Christ's followers? Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your your mind. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we do that? Intimacy with the Holy Spirit, in prayer, and in his word, and in worship. Your mind is the thermostat that sets the temperature for the rest of your body. I believe it's Matthew... It's in Matthew somewhere. It says that our eyes are the light of our body. Our mind is linked to our eyes. And if our eyes are bad, then our whole body is bad. If our eyes are good, our whole body is good. The same thing is said for our mind. It controls the temperature of the rest of our body. And the Holy Spirit helps us with that, which is why David's pleading with God, don't take your presence from me. Please don't take your spirit from me. I need that. And I'm so thankful that God does not treat his love for us like a prize. I don't know if you've had a loved one in your life or maybe in your past or a coach or or a teacher or, or someone you looked up to and you had to earn their approval. You had to earn their love. If you do certain things, then I'll love you. If you meet the bar, then you get accepted. If you go above expectations, now you get daddy's love. I'm so thankful that God does not take and pull and give and, and do all this with his love. He loves us, but he cannot stand our sin. I have to be clear about that. He loves us, but he cannot stand our sin. Let's keep reading. It's in verse 14. And God says, because of your sin, by doing this, you have shown utter contempt from the Lord. The son born to you will die. Y'all, that's heavy. That's heavy. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. It says that David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent nights laying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders were like, man, you got to get up. You got to eat. And David refused. And on the seventh day, the child died. Then David got up from the ground after he'd washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped probably one of the hardest moments in his life. And his first response is to go and worship. He pleaded, he fasted, he worshiped. He prayed, he fasted, he worshiped. He prayed, he fasted, he worshiped. I mentioned this last summer while I was here. It seems that in the Western church, that fasting is not a core discipline of our faith anymore. But I'm convinced according to scripture and my experience with the Holy Spirit, that fasting needs to be a core discipline, just like prayer, just like worship, just like reading the word. Because after David did these things, 
he got clarity from God. He got clarity in the grieving process. He knew what to do next. He went and comforted his wife. They had another baby. Hello. And that baby had a lot of favor. He got back out on the battlefield, the same place that he should have been in the chapter before. Because he prayed, he fasted, and he worshiped. So if you were taking good notes, that was nine points. But here's my main three, and I'll go through these quickly. There's three main things that you and I need to take away in our walk with God, our personal walk with God, from this text when we're confronted by the Holy Spirit in our sin or when we're confronted by someone that we trust in our sin. The first thing we have to do is that we have to confess and we have to repent. And I want to be clear again, these are not the same thing, and we need to do both of these quickly. Anytime we sin against God and anytime that we sin against other people, I heard it say this way, that a change of mind produces a change of the way. But we need the Holy Spirit's help to renew our mind. Sometimes trying to get my two kids together in the morning as I'm getting my stuff together, making sure my coffee's right, making sure that their teeth are brushed and their hair are brushed, but not by the same thing, making sure their clothes are on, their shoes are on the right feet, the lunches have been packed, they're in the backpack, ready to go. I can miss some things. And so... During the summer, my kids, we have a, a daycare or a preschool at our campus, at the Cabot campus. And so sometimes it's pretty beneficial that they're there right down the hall. And sometimes I just get wore out by the teachers about all the times my kids say whatever. Anyway, I get a text from the teacher. It says, hey, you forgot Kai's lunch today. And I remembered I was going 100 miles an hour that morning. And it's probably pretty likely that I did, you know, because in our lives, when we get to going fast, we can forget things. But I remembered in my mind, I know I put that kid's lunchbox in his backpack. Not the best dad in the world, but I nailed it today. I know I put it there. And so they're right down the hall. And like, I'm like, I'm about to go walk down there and get his lunch. And then I thought to myself, well, Kai is kind of conniving sometimes. He kind of plays around. Maybe he hid his lunch from his teacher just to show the teacher he's still in control as a five-year-old, you know? And so I end up walking down there and, and checking on the lunch situation. And I'm convinced I'm going to find this lunch in the cubby. Because in my mind, I see the lunchbox. And as I'm walking down there, the teacher says, hey, the lunchbox is here, but there's no lunch in it. <laughs> Nailed it. I had no idea that morning that I was going through the motions as a father. I had no idea it looked like I was doing the right things, but I was just going through the motions. There was no lunch in the lunchbox. And I'm convinced as Christians, there's times we don't know that we're going through the motions and there is no lunch in our lunchbox. It looks like we got it all together. We're going 100 miles an hour, checked off the checklist. But we don't have the things in place in our life that are real, that are authentic, there's no spiritual disciplines in place is my point. Number two is we have to confess and repent. Two is that we need spiritual disciplines in place, not just motions, a prayer and fasting and worship. What I love about David, y'all, we know he didn't get it right all the time. But when he messed up, when he was caught in sin, when he was grieving the loss of his son, many other times in his life, Scripture points out his core spiritual disciplines. They were already in place. 
He didn't have to go to the vending machine of the Lord and put in a dollar and get a Coke out and he was good to go. They were already in place. So he knew how to fall on his face. He knew how to pray. He knew where to go worship. I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you're not going through anything right now. I'm certain we all have in our past. But y'all, it would do us well to have spiritual disciplines in place when that thing does happen. But even outside of that, just because God is worthy, because he's Lord, because he's Savior. I tell our students all the time that in God's kingdom, disciplines turn into delights. Is it easy to wake up every morning and read the word or to read it at night? No, especially when you're starting. Is it easy to fast? No. Is it easy to worship when you don't feel like it? No, but what I love about the Holy Spirit is that he empowers us to have disciplines and he turns them into delights. And there is no way I cannot be in God's word. There's no way I can listen to the people I used to listen to in music. There's no way I can't spend my time every day with God because of our relationship and the time that we have spent together, but it didn't start easy. And I tell our students this too, and there's people in this room that your disciplines are so far greater than mine. But it would be crazy to think I could go to the gym one day and have your muscles, right? Some of y'all walked in and your muscles have muscles. <laughs> it takes time after time. It takes repetition and time with the Lord. And those disciplines, I guarantee you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to turn into a delight. Because in prayer, we get to have communion with the Father. When we worship, our daily camouflage, our facade gets to come off. When we fast, we get divine clarity in whatever it is that we're praying for. God, do I need a date? God, do I need to do this? Do I need to apply here? Do we need to move the family? Fasting helps with that. Lastly, number three, and I'm going along, but I told y'all that I had an hour. Number three is that he got back on mission. There's so many times, church, that I've missed the mark, that I've stumbled repeatedly. But time after time, the Holy Spirit is encouraging you and I to get back up, get back on the battlefield. Yeah, I see your sin, you're confessing, you're repenting. I'm gonna honor that, I'm gonna help you, but you still gotta keep fighting. And David at the end of chapter 12, he gets back on the battlefield and he kills a lot of people in God's name. David said bye to pride. He said bye to shame. He knew what he had to do and he did it. And then to top it off, this is where David gets it right. In verse 13 in Psalm chapter 51, he says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners are gonna turn back to you. That is our job as Christ followers. They say, God, here's all of my mess ups. Here's my story, turn it into a testimony. Because a story and a testimony are not the same thing. One does not have the power of the Holy Spirit. We all have weak areas. When the Holy Spirit takes that and turns it into a testimony and you tell people about it, people start turning back to God. That's what I'm doing right now. But you don't have to have a microphone to do that. You just got to have a testimony. Can we be honest and say we've all messed up? Can we be honest and say we all need the Holy Spirit? 
You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to have a lot of, of gifting or skill when it comes to telling your story. What I love about our testimony is no one can argue with it. It's mine. You might not believe it, but it's mine. That's why Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, I think, we overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And that leads people back to the heart of God. But when life turns more into about us and less about God, we're missing the mission of life. So do you, boo-boo. <laughs> but eventually you're going to have to come back to God. When our life is about us and not about the kingdom, we are missing the mission. And there's no condemnation today. It's just confess and repent. Get back on the battlefield. I'm just convinced there's no way you and I can have an authentic encounter with the Holy Spirit, see His goodness, experience His grace, and not tell people about it. If you haven't had that yet, today's the day. Today's the day. I believe David is called a man after God's own heart because of these things. He confesses and repents. He has spiritual disciplines because he loves the Lord and he lived on mission for God. As I studied, I mentioned that word then jumped out to me. Then David confessed. I just wanna remind you today, the Lord has great patience for you and I. He's been waiting for today for you to say, today is a day that I confess. God, I'm sorry. Yes, God, I did it. It was last week, it was last night, it was 10 years ago. Today is the day I let go of it. I love in this text that we see the gospel message. And I'll close right here. I love that God inspired Nathan to talk specifically about a lamb. David knew all about them. He was a lamb expert. He wrote the book, Lamb for Dummies. You know, like he knew all about them. I'm convinced that they, or that the Lord knew that talking about a lamb was going to appeal to David's senses. He could have talked about any other animal in the story, but he talked about a lamb. I believe that God knew David's passion for a lamb would be linked to his conviction to the Lord. These two things, all of David's life went hand in hand, sheep in God's presence, lambs in the power of the Holy Spirit. This rich guy, he had so many other options to choose from. But he chose to prepare the lamb the other man had. And weirdly, the word says it was like a daughter to him. But I love how the gospel presents itself in a way here because we know that Jesus is the lamb. He's the only lamb of the Father that was prepared since the beginning of time. Church, hear me. He wasn't like the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. The only Son that was sent before you and I knew we even needed Him. Can we close our eyes this morning? I'm going to talk to you for one more moment, and then we're going to pray together. The Lord wrecked me, and as I was even talking about this text with Seth, He, he wrecked me and Seth. Church, you and I are the man in this story. We're the one that deserves to die. But the gospel is so ridiculous and outlandish 
that God sent his son to die for us, to pay for our sin. The Lord's been wrecking me all week, reminding me of his goodness and his kindness and his grace and his love and his mercy. But he was also wrecking me for my wayward ways. And he was reminding me that value is established. No matter what country you're in, where you're at, value is established by what someone will pay for something. And the Lord, your creator, sent his only son. And I pray today you would be overwhelmed with what he paid for you. That you would be overwhelmed by his grace. That you would be overwhelmed by his capacity to forgive whatever it is that you've done. that lamb was prepared and slain so you and I could have forgiveness of our sin. So we could have access to the Father in heaven, have a relationship, and so we could have a best friend on the inside of us and the Holy Spirit. And right there in your seat, I want you to pray this. Holy Spirit, I heard the message, but what are you saying to me? I heard the word, but what are you speaking to me right now? We're just going to listen.